spring break is right around the corner, and so are we with this next episode. Welcome again to TK's A Brigade. I am your host, TK. And the artist I want to share with you today is a local Northern Colorado artist named Dave Beagle. Now, Dave and his brother Morris Beagle have been in the Northern Colorado music scene for about four decades. I've known the Beagle brothers about 20 years, so I decided to reach out to Dave and ask him to come and join us on the music series and share his journey with us. He said, no problem, Trav, I'd love to. So I called him on the phone and we dove into his journey. So put your headphones on, turn up your radio, and listen in as we dive into the musical life of Dave Beagle here on TK's A Brigade. Yes, I am excited to hear more about your story, Dave. So everybody, welcome to TK's A Brigade. Today I have a old friend on the phone with me. His name is Dave Beagle. He hails from Northern Colorado, and we're going to talk about his story today. So Dave, why don't you go ahead and say hi to the folks? Hey, it's nice to be here. You know, you and I kind of talked about doing this about a month ago, and you've been really busy with, you know, what you do. And I'm really honored that I got to get you on today and and just talk about your journey and kind of where you started with music. And so that's kind of what I was hoping for today is just find out a little bit more about Dave Beagle and and where he started musically and how his journey has taken him to where you are today. Well, I love it. Let's jump in. Well, cool, man. So, yeah, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us like kind of where the beginning started for you? <laughs> Actually, the beginning for started for me in my mother's womb because um, I, you know, I, the piano that's in my studio is the piano that my grandmother learned to play on. I think it came out to um, Beaver, Oklahoma, in a covered wagon. So I was literally hearing my dad play the piano before I was born. Oh, wow. Those were my earliest childhood memories. I started writing songs on that piano when I was probably about six years old and then started playing, um, taking lessons when I was eight, kind of traditional piano lesson stuff. And that was fine enough. I would have the, the piano teacher play me songs before I went home to practice my lesson. And I kind of remember how it went. So I mostly learned, I kind of cheated. I, I'm not a great music reader because I would remember how she played it and I'd kind of plink it out by ear more than I would actually learn to read the music so um, but I was like I said I was writing I still remember the first song I wrote when I was six and that was fun for a while then I got a little bored with it and then my dad got me into boogie woogie piano because I quit lessons for a couple years and then that was fun because I was improvising and doing something with a little more with a little more whatever a little more swagger and a little more fun to it and then in fifth grade, I heard Black Sabbath, which kind of changed things for me. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> then um, started playing guitar at 13. I got a guitar for Christmas. And um, and I still play I still play keyboards and piano and stuff. But, you know, uh, it's you know, actually, when I was in seventh grade, my dad, he, he used to talk and dream a lot. He'd say, yeah, we should buy an electric piano sometime. So. I actually took him up on it and uh, went to some music stores and and said, "Hey, uh, you know, buy an electric piano. Let me play some." And so I was at this music store called Natural Music, and I played "Bad Bad Leroy Brown" on the piano. Uh oh. And they're like, "Hey, you're pretty good. You want to you want to be a part of our our little band that we do on the Fourth of July float?" And I'm like, "Sure, that sounds fun." So my very first gig playing music in front of a in in front of people was. Um, I was actually singing, playing piano, 
doing taking care of business at Bachman Turner Drive. So that uh, the very first time I played music with a band in in um, in front of people, and then I got a fuzz wah pedal so I could do Iron Man on the on the uh, Fender Rhodes. Didn't quite sound as cool as guitar. So once I got guitar, uh, got a guitar when I was 13, then it was um, pretty much no turning back. So <laughs> I've been. I've been, and I started playing professionally um, through that band and through those connections. Um, there was a bar in downtown Loveland called the Top Hat. Oh yes, right on Fifth and, Street. Well, it was on Fourth Street back in the. 70s. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. It's been around a long time, and it was, um, you know, no disrespect, but it was kind of the the lowest on the totem pole of, of bars that would have um, music. There was one next door called the Buckhorn, and they wouldn't have music. So, um, so some of the people I played with on the, the parade, somehow somebody knew the owner, and they needed a band. So, three 15-year-olds started playing full time at the Top Hat four nights a week from like nine till one thirty in the morning. Oh boy! So I was making seventy-five bucks a week when I was fifteen, which was pretty cool. And. Um, that was before smoking bands so when we'd take a break and i'd bring my equipment home oh my gosh it was so infested with cigarette smoke it was crazy oh man i can't imagine especially back so, then at that time oh yeah and i remember there'd be some nights when i could barely see the clock at the end end of the room because it was so smoky in there so oh, geez it was a, a good lesson in the reality of of um you know playing music four nights a week and it was country music i you know we'd go out in on break and listen to led zeppelin and black sabbath in the cars and come back and play uh <laughs> Charlie step. pride and, oh, and that stuff which which was great i actually look back on those days with fondness and thankfulness that wow i was a 15 year old kid and i'm making money playing music four nights a week sleeping through english class on friday because i didn't get any sleep the night before and um making 75 bucks a week wow now you you're a native of of colorado right uh close enough i moved here when i was about i think about six or so six or seven we moved to fort collins and then we're there for nine months and then moved to loveland so i pretty much grew up here okay yeah because so i moved to colorado in 95 from iowa and okay. uh i remember when i first got into colorado you know the the music scene i was living out in windsor the music scene okay. in Fort Collins, you know, obviously it was only, you know, 15 at the time. So I didn't really have a, a pulse on the music scene until right about 18 years old. And uh, I started playing with a band called Switchback. Uh, Sean, oh, yeah. Sean Wright and uh, Eric Cox and Tom Woolrich and David Work. And, uh, man, we started, you know, playing around. We were playing all the bars in, in you know, Loveland, Fort Collins. So when you said the top hat... Man, I, I've yeah, I've played that venue, and I know what you mean, bro. Like before yeah. they banned cigarettes, man, you couldn't you couldn't see the 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 front of the uh, the bar from the stage, man. It was like a yeah, thick it, haze. I know it's it's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm I still hope I don't wind up with secondhand cancer because I never smoked. Oh, My parents man. smoked, and I played. I've been playing at smoky bars, you know, since I was 15 until they banned smoking. So yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. Well, so what's crazy is so in 2000, I started bouncing at a bar in uh, Fort Collins called Archers. And oh, yeah. uh, this cat used to come in. His name is Greg Cook. 
and oh, yeah. he he was an amazing he well he still is an amazing drummer but he would come in and he would you know he would host thursday night jams and and he would always talk about the beagle brothers and i was yeah. like man the beagle brothers he's like oh yeah man you know dave and morris beagle and i'm like who are these cats so i started to you know obviously i've been a musician my whole life as well and you know, I had to find out who these cats were because, I mean, he would brag about you guys, you know, as much as he could. And then, you know, the first time I met your brother Morris, you know, he comes in and he comes in and he gives me this look. He's like, dude, you're a giant. And I was like, yeah, bro. He's like, yeah, I want you for my security, man. I run Happy Scratch Records here in Fort Collins. And, uh, oh, you know, cool. I got my brother, you know, we're we're doing our thing. And I was like, that's awesome. So it really made me push into learn a little bit more about you. But, you know, I don't really even know your full journey. Like, so here we are, you know, you're playing Loveland, you're playing around Fort Collins. So at what point in your career did you really start to like press in and take it real serious you know pretty much always um, okay you know although you know how it goes there's a million people that set out to be rock stars and um very few of them actually do that but a lot of them wind up with some form of um career in the music industry which i would consider myself one of those sure um uh, i remember right after i graduated from high school so i joined a band in high school called straight edge okay and the leader of the band was 26 at the time which is you know that's when you're 17 18 that's like wow he's grown up he owns his own house you know right right and um we we were gonna we were gonna hit it big we were writing originals and west was a good guy good musician good songwriter you know, and so we were playing around in the area. That was my first full-time rock band. And then, um, you know, after a while, that fizzled out. And then I joined another band right after that called Razor's Edge from Fort Collins. And then that w went for a while. I had played with, I had done some demo work with this guy who I think at the time was um, living in... Um, Washington State, and actually, uh, on that note, his name was Joe Wood. He knew uh, a guy that was a drummer had played in a band around Denver called Canary, which was one of the bigger club bands in the 70s. And this guy knew some people that worked for Kiss, so through knowing Joe, who knew Bill, the drummer, that's when I, when I was 21, I went out and auditioned for Kiss. Oh, wow. Placing Ace Freely, which was a fun experience. I'm and then, sure. Uh, Shortly after that, then he called me up and said, hey, I'm doing a record. We're going to go up to uh, Mushroom Studios in Vancouver, Canada, which is where Hard had done their first, maybe first two records. I know their first record. Um, and so I, he flew me up to Canada and we did a, did a record. Uh, and then um, I moved up to, to live with him. So all along then, I was pretty serious. I was pretty devoted to, um, you know, like not being in a bar band and not just hanging out partying and playing guitar but like really being the best i could be so when i joined my second band i remember we were playing a, a club in in riverton wyoming and we'd finish in the, the the living quarters were above the same club so we'd finish the gig walk up the stairs and we have our little band house upstairs and everybody would either turn on the tv or just whatever and i'd lock myself in the bathroom and after playing four sets, I'd practice till three or four or five in the morning. Oh, wow. Because uh, I was really, I was serious about, you know, not like, I don't want to, I like playing in bars, but I don't want to, that's not my gig. You know, right. I wanna, I'm, I'm going to hit the big time, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
So I was pretty much pretty serious all along. Then I moved up to Washington with my friend Joe, and we did that for about a year. And it started out as we're going to be a band, we're going to get signed, we're going to do original music, and then you move up, and then that's not happening. And before you know it, you're playing five, six nights a week in a lager bar with a, a bunch of alcoholics fighting each other. And after like, oh, okay, I don't think this is going anywhere. So that's when I moved back to Colorado. And this was and what year? That would have been 85 that I was in Washington State. Oh, wow. Okay, in so 85, you come back to Colorado. Yeah, in 84, before I left, I had a band that was another band that was going to hit the big time. And that was with two of the people from Fourth Estate. That was with Fred Babick, the bass player, and Jim Iltis, the drummer, as well as my good friend Keith Rosenhagen. And we started playing music in ninth grade. Right. And so we, we were kind of serious about trying to make it happen. And then for about a year and a half, and then Keith's like, no, nah, I'm going to go to college in Phoenix. And, and Fred was going to sell life insurance. So I'm like, well, fine, I'll move into Washington State to be in a band with Joe. And that lasted a year. Then I moved back and I started getting together with uh, Fred and Jim just to play music and just write some songs. And then we had a, a, a friend of Fred's had this little music festival that he did in Fort Collins that we played at. We literally knew, I think we'd written three songs and maybe had a cover tune and we did like a five song opening set. It was an outdoor thing. Like 20 um, minutes outdoor. real quick. Uh-huh. Yeah, real like real quick 20 minute set like you get in, you get you play and you get off pretty much, right? Exactly. So, that was it, you know. And so we did it and this guy who ran a bar called the Laughing Dog Saloon comes up and said, "You guys are great. How about you guys come play my room every Monday night? You have the whole night." And I'm thinking, "We have four songs. How are we going to cover 3-4 hours of music?" <laughs> right. Which, so then it's like, great, that sounds great. And then it's immediately, it's like, okay, let's learn some cover tunes. So since we were an instrumental band, you know, I think I sang White Room and uh, I sang maybe three songs, you know. And so then it's like, let's learn some surf music. I used to play in a surf band when I was in seventh grade. We'll do Pipeline and Walk Don't Run and some of those things and that's actually when I decided I'd learn that, that arrangement of Joy, which was originally done, actually not originally, secondary done by a keyboard group in the 70s called Apollo 100, which is funny. That was just one of the cover tunes that we put together that has since become kind of one of the signature songs that I've played a th thousands of times since, whatever, 1986. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we are, the drummer of that band, Jim, worked, uh, was a part of a studio called FTM Studios in Denver. He was actually hired as the engineer while they were still building the studio. So since our friend Jim worked there and he had gone to audio engineering school, we decided, yeah, let's do, we did, we did three cassette tapes and we're like, we're going to do our first record. We got a guy that had wanted to invest in us. And so we went in and made the first fourth estate record, Finesse, Finesse and Fury, you know, and self-produced it, did it for a reasonably, you know, affordable thing. Sure. And um, and then, you know, we're pretty serious. Like, we, okay, we're going to we're gonna tour. We're going to, you know, do what we can to really make it as, you know, an instrumental progressive rock group, which there's not a lot of money. You know, Satriani and Steve Vai have both 
obviously done really well. And, um, you know, we had a couple of moments of almost getting signed, but it, you know, it never happened. And that was right when grunge was sort of taking off. So, you know, there's, there's a million ways of that people almost made it. Yes. I've heard that story a lot. The almost, the almost famous moment. Exactly. Or, you know, I've had students get signed and go out on tour and then, you know, and then they don't do their second record. And, you know, there's, like I said, there's so, as you know, there's so many things that almost happened and not quite, but I'm, I'm super thankful that, you know, through all of the years, I'm, I'm still supporting myself as a musician. Which is important because let's be honest, like a lot of people don't understand that are not artists. They don't understand the uh, the gravity or the depth it takes to create from nothing. And so when they hear something that's polished or finished, you know, and this is just my own experience, but they're like, wow, that's so good. And you're like, oh, thank you. But do you realize how long it took me to do that? And they're like, oh, oh what, yeah. a couple of days. And you're like, no, that was like months of rewrites. And that was months of recording and editing. And, you know, and then you hear a section, you're like, nope, don't like that. We got to redo that or whatever the case may be. But it's it's never, um, you know, it's never been, you know, just a simple nine to five jobs so people that understand it as artists i think they have a different appreciation than you know just the the usual fan you know oh yeah you know and i being the fact that i've uh, been producing records for i think probably more than 25 years now i read a lot of um information you know interviews with producers and engineers and all that stuff and Boy, I, I know a lot of the backstories of a lot of records I like, and it's just like, oh my gosh, you guys spent how many hours on this? It's a great record, but it's, you know, it's like the record's 40 minutes long, and they spent 500 hours on it. Right, right, like, yeah. Wow, you know, it, and you know, the Beatles, they got their sets together in Germany, and they went and did their first record in a couple of days, and Van Halen did their first record really fast, and there's those moments that of bands that go in as kind of like ready to go but there's also a lot of moments where with great records that were worked and reworked and developed and i mean it's it can be a lot of work to get stuff that yes is really good you know yes. one of my favorite quotes that i live by is from don henley and it was when he was interviewed in mix magazine and they said they asked him they said what do you attribute your greatness to? And he said, a high tolerance for repetition. <laughs> that's a good answer. Like, yeah. And I seriously, I read that. I'm like, okay, that's a life quote. And I, everybody I've ever produced a record for, I tell them that right up, right front out. It's like, okay, the Eagles, one of the greatest bands ever. You think they just went in the studio and, and magic happened? No. This is what Don Henley said, you know? Yep. Those guys really 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 hard to make really good records you know and it didn't happen just by walking in and smoking a joint and just letting it all hang out and the magic happens well and that's the funny thing when you say that too dave because you know a lot of people that i've talked to over the years um and, and i say this with non-artists and non-musicians is that the idea that someone can just go in and sit down and you know you you rip out a, a chord progression you know or you just come up with a riff and then you expound on that riff and then you have, you know, the rest of the band or you have different artists that come in and play on that song or that record. And, and, and it's funny because, like you said, 
you know, you could sit down and you could probably write a, a riff, uh, a full riff, you know, a three minute, 30 second riff with, you know, changes and breaks and everything and, and five or 10 minutes. I mean, as far as the talent level that you're at personally, however, what it took for you to get to that level was those after our practices and those years of just redoing it and repetition and continually like, okay, nope, that note structure doesn't work or oh, nope, that progression doesn't work and just really reworking it and refining it. And I think that's what makes artists like yourself. And I say this, you know, in all due respect, you know, I've worked with a lot of different artists over the years, whether it's vocalists, guitarists, you know, so on and so forth. I have never seen somebody who attacks the, the, their instrument, and I use the word attack in a good way, but have attacked their instrument with such zeal. And I've watched you play, oh, dude, a dozen times, at least live. And the way that you approach it, I, I'm just, I, to this day, man, I still am amazed on how, you know, you'll look at the neck, and this is my perspective, right? So, you know, you look at the neck of the guitar and you kind of just see, okay, I want to, like, I can just see the wheels turning in your mind. And then you'll go to it and you'll start playing a section and you'll start playing a riff. And, and then you'll just go through that progression and you're like, how the heck did he even come up with that? And it's just amazing. And I'm like, and, and I see you and then you'll, you know, you might back off because you might be playing to, there might be like a, you know, like a drum line or, you know, there might be a music, um, you know, progression in the background that you're playing to. And then, you, you know, you might give it four bars or eight bars and then you'll come back in and seeing artists do that like yourself. It, it always amazes me, Dave, because, you know, here I am, you know, I don't play guitar. I can play it sometimes. But, you know, I look to guys like you and I say, man, how do you do it? I mean, you've been doing it, what, 40 years now at least? Well, I started started guitar at 13 and I'm 61. So however many years that is. Wow. Okay. So I was, I, I honestly, Dave, I thought you were a little bit younger, man. So you, you carry your age well, my friend. That's, uh, <laughs> so that's crazy. So when I heard about you, man, you had been, uh, I'm going to say I started hearing about the Beagle Brothers in 2000. Um, I had heard stories about Fourth Estate. And then I heard stories about you touring with Phil Keggy, which as a kid, I, he was one of my favorites, and I actually got to see Phil when I was like 87, I think, 88, um, back home in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He came through on tour, but I got to see Phil, and then when I heard about you, you know, touring with him, I thought, man, this guy, this, and he lives in Fort Collins, this guy has made it. I mean, what, what can you tell me about those years or, you know, as far as your career when it comes to that? Well, um, when I was, I think, shortly after high school, or right, I had a friend in high school who was into the, you know, the burgeoning Jesus movement music stuff, which is where Phil came from in right. the 70s. And so um, he was into that stuff. And, you know, especially at the time, I thought a lot of it was lame. And some of it was good. Some of it was whatever, you know. Right. And then um, he turned me on to Phil Keggy. And I think it was a live album, How the West Was Won, where there's a guitar solo, just an unaccompanied guitar solo, which... I remember reading Steve Morris talking about that very recording, saying how amazing it was. And that was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's really good. So I went and saw him live in Denver. Nice. Just by himself. And this would have been maybe early 80s, could have been late 70s. And I'm like, wow. And at the time, being a total rock, I'm like, he's pretty good. But if you gave him, if you cranked him up through a Marshall really loud, I'd like it better. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, um, but anyway, there was a point. So then I, I basically became 
a fan and saw him every chance I got. And there was a point when um, it was right after Alan Holdsworth's first solo record, IOU, came out. And uh, I, I think it was, I literally bought it out of the back of a magazine. Wow. And so I was, I got it as soon as I could. And I was going to see Phil the next week. So I recorded a cassette tape of it because I didn't know if he had it yet or not. I knew he liked Holdsworth. And I gave it to him and I said, oh, by the way, on the other side of the tape, for whatever it's worth, there's a couple of songs I recorded. You can check them out, you know. And that was it. And then the next year I saw him, um, I went up and said hi. And he says, oh, yeah, you gave me that Holdsworth thing. That's great. Oh, by the way, that stuff on the other side was really good. I'm doing a guitar clinic tomorrow. You want to come up and be a part of it with me? And he just asked me, you know, wow. just like... And I'm like, uh, sure. Yeah, you know? sure, why not? And so he was, he's such a, he's a really, really sweet, genuine, humble person. And so just, you know, he basically invited me to do this guitar clinic with him. And then I'd sit in with him when he'd come to town. And then there was a point where um, he had some shows, you know, he was still doing more acoustic stuff, but he had a couple of shows that needed a band. And, you know, the, the promoter in Denver, a guy named Robbie Marshall with Road Home, um, became a bit of a fan of Fourth Estate. So he organized a couple shows where um, Fourth Estate was kind of the band as part of the thing. And Phil came in and, and was a part of our band. So that's how we actually wound up playing with Phil. Is Robbie just brought him in by himself and he didn't have to pay for a band. And of course, you know, we're happy to be Phil's backing band. Sure. Yeah, and that, then, that must have been amazing. It was great. And then after we did a couple of things like that with him, and then he called us up once and said, hey, I've got this thing in Texas or this thing here, and can you guys be my band? And and so I'm like, of course. So we packed up a van and drove down to Texas to do some stuff with Phil, which was, was really great. That was actually, you know, you talked about high points or uh, moments historically when i look back on you know what i've done with music there was one time specifically on that little um gig it was a big outdoor festival in, Te in tyler texas and we were phil's band which was great and he's like yeah i want to tear you guys i want to set you guys loose for a couple songs so i remember we were playing joy of course which was you know a great melody written by bach that is people just love on the first listen and I remember we were playing it and the crowd was really into it and looking over and seeing Phil on the at the edge of the stage just like you know feel feeling like oh Phil's really proud of us you know we're his band and now we're doing our song and it's and it's really connecting with people and just that was one of my favorite moments of just looking over seeing like my big guitar hero Phil I'm doing our stuff and his band and playing for a, a large group of people and it's just totally magic you know that's awesome bro and th that was going to be my next question was who uh of all the guitarists uh you know in history who has really influenced you the most when it comes to guitar well early on 
I would say, you know, my the band that got me excited to play guitar was Black Sabbath. Right. Okay. So uh, with Rhodes, what's his name? Uh, no, that was with Tony Iommi. Oh, okay. Was that uh, was that when Vinnie Apice was playing drums, or was that before Vinnie? That was before that. Back, you know, they started back in the '60s. So it was oh, wow. with you know Bill Ward and Ozzy and um, just the, the the very first five or six Sabbath records. I learned all those things, and it's funny because I learned all that music. I don't. Re- I play, and I, even sometimes I try to sound like Tony Iommi. Okay. And I don't. You know, <laughs> okay. so it, it was like music I still listen to, still like. And then there's other artists that I learn just little bits and pieces from, but for whatever reason, like I hear their style and my playing more than I do other things that I really studied. Like I was a huge Rush fan, loved Alex Lifeson, learned cool chords from him. Love Sabbath, um, Ronnie Montrose, Rick Derringer. Those were all guys that I liked a lot when I was young. And then when I was getting, I'll say, just getting a little more sophisticated as a musician, then I got turned on to Phil Keggy and um, really loved Eric Johnson. When I first heard him, it just felt like there was some magic there that I, I really loved and connected with. I got, when I was 18, I started playing flamenco guitar, studying with Rene Heredia, who's a Spanish gypsy that lives in Denver. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, through that, I got really turned on to Paco de Lucia, who, in my opinion, is, you know, the best guitar player in the history of the instrument, you know, as as the opinion of me. But sure, sure. He's just, he's just amazing. And, you know, I wish I could play like him, but I can't. But it's, you know, I still listen to him and just like, it's just magic and mystery and amazing everything that I think of that's quality, um, virtuosity with spirit and passion and timing and not virtuosity for that, for its own sake, but true spirit and musicality. Nice. But then also um, around that time, I got real excited about Alan Holdsworth, who, you know, became really influential on you know, Phil Keggy and um, Satriani and Steve Vai and Alex Lifeson and the whole, so many, Eddie Van Halen, that was his favorite guitar player, you know, Holdsworth and Eric Clapton. So that was, um, and I still, I hear a lot of Holdsworth's influence in my songwriting and my chords, not as much in my soloing. And, you know, even a lot of the acoustic stuff I write, I'll come up with these chord progressions and alternate tunings, and I'm like, wow, that kind of sounds a little bit like Holdsworth, but of course simplified. And like, it's kind of makes me happy that as much as I really connected with his music, that I feel there's certain components of just the the moodiness or the com- complexity and whatever with chord progressions that just naturally flows out of me without me intentionally trying to do like a Holdsworth thing or something like that. Right, right. All right, so I'm just I'm picturing your your uh, your career in my mind, you know, and with all the, the the things that you've done already and my uh 
my thought process takes me to like so you know you're talking about playing in the late 80s or early 80s into the 90s into the 2000s and we're pushing 21st century 2022 so what do you feel really brought longevity to keeping you playing was it was it the idea of success or was it more just because you love the instrument and you love the um the idea of coming up with new things all the time Boy, that's um, that can get super philosophical. I <laughs> okay. think um, I, I have to say I'm really just thankful that I um, I get to do music and I haven't starved yet. <laughs> that's a good um, thing. And um, I've seen a lot of artists come and go, and you know people that I really like oh man i wish i could be doing what this person's doing and you know a lot of them just destroy themselves with drugs or alcohol or or burn out and never move forward create creatively so very true uh, i i think the fact that i've been teaching guitar since i was 18 so a long time and i love to teach i love um working with you know not only new people or young people but i have a lot of students who are older people like guys now that have retired and can really enjoy playing music and you know there's so many music is such a great gift and to attach some level of what it's going to do for you like it's going to make me rich it's going to make me famous it's going to bring me around the world i'm going to meet girls whatever blah 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 it's like the longer i play the the more i try to just appreciate music for the gift that it is right. and i see people like willie nelson who's 89 still making records really good records paul mccartney who's 80 talking about a record he made in lockdown and he's talking about writing songs and then building on this riff and doing this thing and he, i'm like he's it's paul mccartney like the most successful musician in the last hundred years and he's still excited to write a song you know and i'm like awesome. he's doing what i do Except yeah. he's Paul McCartney, right, and he right. was in the Beatles, right. and he's still excited to make a record, you know, and not that many people listen to it, whatever, but Paul McCartney is still excited to write a song, and he's and he just had a real youthful energy about it, and I'm like, okay, that's what I want to be, regardless of what I do success-wise, I, want, I, I get inspired by old people now, because I'm 60, and I've seen people come up and burn brightly and then fade away and but then you've got these guys like willie and paul who are just you know they're like they're they are musicians they didn't choose to be music just kind of comes out of them and there's a there's a true joy and a love and a sincerity about it and paul's not making a record so he can make some money or get more famous i just really try to just keep a sincere love for music and as a guitar player, I mean, I don't know how many lifetimes I would have to live to even get what I would like to accomplish together. You know, it's like sure. every time I pick up a guitar, it's almost discouraging. It's just like, oh my gosh, I wish I could do this. I wish I could do this. Am I still not being able to do this yet? I've been working on this for 40 years and I still struggle with this and I still can't capture this magic or that or play like Paco or whatever. And God willing, you know, my health will hold out for, you know, maybe another 30 years or so. And I'll still go. be excited to, 
play music when I'm, you know, in my 80s or whatever, or nice. 90s. Great answer, Dave. Great answer. All right, I got a couple of quick questions and we'll wrap this up. My first question is, uh, what is the biggest crowd that you've ever played in front of in your career? Probably, this, this is going to answer both your questions, because I think it's at Red Rocks. Wow. I've played there twice, um, once with Fourth Estate and once was with um, uh, a group called the Colorado Worship Band. Okay. And so Red Rocks, I've talked to, you know, big time rock stars and a lot of them that's like their favorite place to play so i think you know capacity at red rocks is isn't it seven thousand or something i think it's like fully full it's i think it's like 13 like like it's fully packed oh okay well yeah. it was packed when i played there both times one of them was opening up for dc talk which was a really great very successful contemporary christian group so um, so that I would have to say Red Rocks would be the biggest crowd I've played for and my favorite venue I've ever played at. So Dave, when you when you say that, you give me goosebumps because um, I just literally I, I did an interview with Toddy Funk of Toby Mac in Diversity and uh, DC Talk is actually my all-time favorite band. Um, oh, great. I have a, I have a signed autograph poster of them in my studio here, but. Uh, I got to do an interview with Todd last week, and we got to talk about his time with Toby, but that's crazy that you say Red Rocks because Toddy Funk and Vince Converse and Michael Hornbuckle, who I've gotten to, to jump on with in the last month, every one of them have all said Red Rocks is their favorite venue of all the venues in the world, man. So there's something about that venue, bro, that I just, man, like... I've been there and I've, I've seen shows there, but I've never gotten to play at Red Rocks. But wow, that's uh, that's cool that you guys all, you know, as far as artists go, that's the favorite venue. It seems to be the consensus of, of venues around the world, man, is Red Rocks. And here we are today, 2022. And I mean, I think you were working on a session earlier today and we got to jump on and talk about your career. And so... What I'd like to know now in a real quick brief moment is, what are you up to these days? Personally, I'm currently working on finishing up an acoustic record, getting my YouTube channel going, and some of those things. I produce a lot of um, Colorado artists, and I have been doing that quite a bit for the last 25 years. So I've got you know, probably six or seven people I'm currently working with, you know, some... Um, some of them are one song, two song things, and a couple full-length projects I'm doing, and a, a couple of things that are going to start up um, in January that'll be full-length projects. So I'm real busy as a producer for singer-songwriter folks, which I love doing that because I'm not a singer, so I get to pull out some of my favorite singer-songwriter, Tom Petty, Beatles kind of guitar stuff on, on music that I would never write by myself. That's awesome, and, and that's crazy because... Uh... Being a producer versus the actual artist, you know, you get to look at the perspective of, of creativity from a different lens. I think that really, uh, that's awesome because, yeah, I'm a singer-songwriter myself, and I know that feeling of, of really trying to approach, you know, a song and trying to really develop it. So um, we're out of time today, Dave. I know you had to get going, man, but I, I just want to thank you immensely, bro, for your uh, your time and jumping on with me today. and. Um, yeah, man, I, I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you uh, out in a gig. You got any gigs coming up here soon? Uh, actually, I just finished a whole bunch of gigs in three different states uh, before Christmas. 
And um, no, I'm not. I okay. I'm playing in um in um oh in in Massachusetts in February. Okay. Um, and then um, <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think I have anything on the calendar. I got to go wrestle up some work. Well, maybe I could get you to do a backyard show here at my house in Denver, man. I'd love it. That would I'm doing, be. Actually, I'm, I'm doing a couple of um, house concert things with uh, a guy I'm doing a record for named Tim Cook, who's been part of the Subdudes for the last 25 years. And oh, man. Timmy, bro, and Steve Almondy. And... Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I know them cats, bro, well. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're great. So, now that I think about it, I'm sorry. I'm actually playing with Tim at um, Avogadro's. I think I'm doing some stuff with Liz Barnes, who's another yes. artist that I'm producing a record for. See, Liz um, is so great. I, uh, yeah, see, all these cats, man, all these people, man, from the Fort Collins music scene, like, from, like, 2000 on, there's so many talented musicians in Fort Collins, it's crazy, bro, so... Yes, I, I, because I would love to come see you. So if you're up in Avogadro's, uh, up in Fort Collins, what is it? You said February. I think that's in January. Oh, January. Okay. Well, I'm gonna have to look yeah. that up, man, because I'd love to come see you play live. It's been a while. I think the last time I saw you play live was at your brother, um, with your brother at the the Hemp uh, Expo. I think uh, t- right. three years ago. So. Okay. Yeah, man, I'd love to come see you live. Well, hey, brother, man, we're out of time today, and I know you got to go. But uh, again, thank you for your time, Dave. Uh, I love your journey, bro, and uh, I look forward to seeing you play live here soon, my man. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. Yes, sir. Maybe we can work together, right? Because I got some songs I'd love to get a producer's ear on. So if that's a possibility in the new year, maybe we could connect on that. I'd love to do that. Just let me know. All right, Dave. Well, you have a wonderful day, man, and uh, I'll hopefully see you here soon in the new year, brother. Alrighty, nice to talk to you. All right, man. Talk to you soon, brother. Late. So, like I said, I've known Dave Beagle for a long time, as well as his brother Morris. Great guys. Um, I consider them good friends. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dave Beagle. I plan on bringing you more of the local artists here in Colorado, as well as national artists. We've got more of the Friends series, as well as the Doe, Shea, and TK series, so stay tuned for that. Next time, we're going to jump into an up-and-coming artist out of New Jersey. Her name is Sam Page. I met Sam on Facebook, ironically. And uh, so we're going to share her journey next time. And until then, take it easy.